So hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv and Tokyo. So today we're interviewing a very special guest, Christopher Hoffman from Humanity Link. So Christopher's been in this humanitarian industry. We'll learn a lot about it since 1999. Welcome, Christopher. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here, Mia. Where are you exactly, Christopher? You're somewhere in the Netherlands. I am. I'm in Groningen. Okay. So can you tell us about your background and how you got interested in the humanitarian field and maybe talk about what Humanitarian Link is? Really, when I was a kid, I ended up having a chance to live abroad in some really remote areas on my own uh, with missionaries. My parents sent me to live with missionaries on my own when I was a kid. And that really started off this whole kind of journey and then Peace Corps and then into the UN and um, then to NGOs and now on my own. And that whole journey has been a learning journey of, first of all, identifying how people live in these areas. What are their their ways of life and being able to be a part of that, which was, was very special. Moving into these times of crisis when people need assistance, how can you walk into that? And so going through that whole process from refugees to, you know, internally displaced people, you know, I responded to Haiti, South Sudan, Libya, Tunisia, Nigeria, Timor-Leste, Philippines, uh, Nepal, you know, all those emergencies I've been in and, and worked within. And that really led me then to more of the management style, you know, sitting up and, and being able to look at the programs that were being developed and being able to influence those. And then finally stepping into this private space of understanding, okay, we understand kind of how people are, wherever they are. We understand when they're affected, what their needs are. We understand what the typical programming is used. So now what's the best way to address all of those three things together? And Humanity Link sees, I think as a group and as our greater group with our advisors is the opportunity to establish more market-based engagements in humanitarian settings so that people can get on their feet faster by engaging in the things that they're going to engage in anyway, right? So stop supplanting, you know, uh, we're going to build your house for you. We're going to give you water. We're going to do all this. or We're going to give you cash. Well, that's great. You give people cash. Cash is a wonderful thing. But if they don't have products to spend it on that are going to help them improve their lives, you know, it's just going to help them buy the onions. But we want to try and help them improve their lives. How do we bring in corporates into these areas which they wouldn't usually engage in How do you get a Twilio into North Uganda? How do you get another tech company like, how do you get Elon Musk to make sure that the satellites are shining over to Dobbs so that you can get wireless internet there, right? How do you do that? And by doing that, you help to show them the market, which is the people in need. You help the people in that market get digital maturity and understand better how to use digital tools, but also new and advanced methods that they can live by. And then you bring the corporates in so that they can test and see, and you de-risk it with the donor funds. You don't give donor funds to people. You de-risk market-based approaches in these areas that can really expand the opportunity for for people to access markets faster. What is humanitarian operations today from your point of view and demystify what humanitarian means and how AI comes into it? Yeah, for sure. You know, when I started in the humanitarian industry, it was really about things, you know, tents, food, water, whatever, you know, and, and that was kind of the original way. And, and it was really kind of cowboy-esque. Things have collapsed in country X 
go in and help. And then here's $10 million, you know, back then, which was a lot of money, go in and, and really assist. And today we're talking about mobile technology, creating the opportunity to engage with people through apps, through phones, um, cashless opportunities for people to go and access food or enter into markets with credit cards. Really utilizing the blockchain across a number of different sectors to ensure that people without identities now do have an identity, that they can access cash, uh, not via a typical banking system, but over their mobile phone. And so it's, it's really morphed and changed over a period of time where, as I said before, you know, what we would look at as a lot of money back then when budgets of a whole organization would might be $500 million. And today we look at some organizations that are 10 and $12 billion per year. So it's been an exponential growth. I mean, I think something else that's important is that the veracity of displacement, the veracity of people seeking assistance has increased exponentially as well. You know, as populations grow, uh, obviously when problems hit, it affects more people. And so you've got a lot of issues there. I think Secondly, we weren't seeing the effects of climate so dramatically in the past. We were really addressing needs associated with mostly conflict. There were droughts, right? We had 1984 in Ethiopia and things that we see, but now we've got an Ethiopia almost every year, right? And so, you know, we're seeing a lot of dramatic effects. So the expansiveness and the, the veracity and truthfully, just the amount of people, funds and people wanting to engage has increased exponentially as well. So what is a humanitarian? Who, who are people like myself or, you know, a, a people around me? The profile has really changed. In the old days, it used to be a truck driver, somebody that had first aid ability, an EMT or something like that, that would go out and help. It's a lot of folks that were out of the military and, and had these skills to help in crisis situations. What we see today is very, very highly educated. I mean, the typical humanitarian at the baseline has a master's degree, so educated in their field quite strongly and with a varied profile. So international relations, international business is usually where it starts. Then they move into you know, their more specific field, psychology. They'll move into you know, logistics. But today the profiles are changing even more dramatically where we're hiring loads of developers. I work with a number of the, the global humanitarian agencies who now have teams of developers, groups of volunteer developers that they have uh, on site now really pushing things forward. So we've seen it really shift. IT today is not the person that's in charge of your Outlook account, right? IT today is a person that can do Python, can do JSON, can program C++, but you know a number of other um, different languages. So it's really changing and we're seeing a, a dramatic difference. And what we do is really dive in to help people that are in need, where their government has lost the ability to assist them due to the, the scope and the size of the disaster. And they need help. And it's hopefully for a short time. That's great. Thanks so much for that beautiful introduction and explanation. And you mentioned there's been a cluster of disasters. What would you say has become chronic? And what would you say is new? Well, chronic is conflict. Conflict is not stopped. Conflict, uh, we call it now, we don't even call it conflict. We call it protracted crisis or protracted conflict because they're just lasting a lot longer. They're covering enormous amounts of area and sometimes regional. So they affect regions because of the migration. All conflicts have always created migration. It's true. But again, the, the size 
And uh, the multi-country profile of conflict now has, has really changed. But one thing that is new, I would say, that we're seeing is a huge increase in migration, right? And migration as a megatrend is always there. People are able to move. Freedom of movement has increased exponentially. But what we see with that is that some can and some cannot. And those that cannot will try. And what happens is that puts them in harm's way. And so we're seeing migration, obviously climate change, again, the, the constant recurrence of things like drought, increased veracity of monsoons, typhoons, hurricanes, and, and the like. All of that is happening. You know, the earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, those types of things, they tend to work on cycles that, that you can almost say, you know, within 100 years, we're going to see an earthquake here or there. That science is pretty solid, but it's more, mostly the human, the human side of things that have really changed. I'm not sure if this is relevant right now, but we just had World Refugee Day. And um, I'm just wondering, what's inhibiting impactful change for people in need? Well, especially in the refugee context, you know, there's something very special about the way that the international community came together in 1956 and really took forward post-World War II, the whole refugee convention and the things that are associated with that. And what we had just a few years ago was the Global Compact on Migration, which was developed to address the needs of migrants because they didn't want to reopen the Refugee Act, right? The, the refugee law, as we call it. And the reason why is because an uptick in right-wing politics really is decreasing a lot of government's engagement with people that are crossing borders and seeking asylum. And so one of the biggest issues uh, that affects uh, displacement solely with the refugee populations is associated with government's decisions on to let them in, how to engage with them, how to assist them, and what to do around what we call the durable solutions. There are three kind of main solutions for a refugee. Um, they can stay where they are. So once they flee and they go across the border, they can stay in that country. Another solution is that they can go back home, which we always like. You know, there's peace at home. They can go back home, get back into their natural coping mechanisms. And the third is what we call resettlement, the opportunity for people to be able to travel to a third country. So, you know, we see that, we, we heard about the, the Trump policy on, on refugees that went down to kind of 10,000 and then Biden has just pushed it back up to kind of 69,000, I think, for 2021. But a lot of governments are still reducing and reducing and reducing. And we look at per capita, governments would much rather give money to a disaster to help people where they are versus accept them to come into their country. You see the, the latest Denmark policy that just came out on moving the Syrian refugees that have been there onto an island to be processed. Australia's been doing this for a long time, uh, you know, onto Manus. So, so governments, yeah, I, I would say it's, it's really around government decision-making and, and politics is what's inhibiting it. Right. Would you like to share a bit or what can you share about Humanity Link, some of your objectives, anything you're currently working on so we can understand, you know, the needs and, and what you're creating and how you're facilitating growth? Absolutely. So Humanity Link is, it applies what we like to call the Hollywood approach. You know, when you watch a movie today, you've got this production company and this production company and this production company. It used to just be kind of Metro Goldwyn Mayer or the lion, you know, would just roar and then that's who did everything. Well, today what we've decided to do with Humanity Link is actually bring in a number of consulting firms under one umbrella to really, number one, increase our expertise. So having a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. But the second thing is to also bring in a wide scope of knowledge and understanding. And what we found is, is that, especially with corporates, uh, and corporates now, we can see the, the expansion of what we call the .orgs, Twilio.org, Google.org, Ikea.org, right? And they are really well-minded with large budgets that want to assist people. 
but they might not understand the context very well, as you say, you know, and so uh, having a, a group like Humanity Link be able to come in, help them to innovate around their products and their ideas and see how they can best assist people in need with their expertise is really what we're there to do. And then after we iterate with them and we understand their products, we understand what they, where they're trying to head, we then partner them with NGOs. So NGOs that are like-minded as well and are able to bring those products into that market of humanitarian work. And so that's our main ethos. That's where we really, we really uh, fix ourselves. That's a great explanation. Thank you. And it kind of makes me think of what you have said earlier about the blockchain. And what's interesting is, you know, how quickly banks and finance companies have jumped on blockchain and they really get what that is. And um, what could we learn from each other? I know you're very interested in partnerships today across the humanitarian field. You know, how can we help those partnerships, how can we really get meaningful and um, impactful results from working together? You know, one of the biggest things is around ethos. It's, it's around the, the ethics that we bring to the table when we're addressing people that are in a vulnerable state, right? And so being able to really help the banks, help those that might be using this technology and might be providing an identity to a person, that they don't just provide that hard piece, which is the identity that there's a lot of stuff that comes behind that or under that. I'll give an example of connectivity. So uh, we're working with some connectivity providers in some refugee camps. And we said the business model is that an NGO will buy, for example, 10 terabytes of data. And then when the person that's displaced wants to access the internet for free, they have to watch a 30 second video, much like you would do in, a, in an airport, right? You watch the video on Holland Casino, and then you get a half, you know, a half an hour free internet at Skipple. But now what we're doing is we're actually doing digital maturity and digital literacy training as those videos, and then they get to access the internet, and then we badge it, we gamify it. So the more videos the watch you watch, the more access you get, and we teach you how to open up an email account, we teach you what spam is and phishing and all that other stuff. And so we walk them through this process to get them to the point, so once they hit the 20, the 20 badges, you know, or 10 badges, whatever it is, that then the NGO videos start coming in. So then the NGO can show them a video on gender-based violence, can show them a video on uh, something else, or ask them questions. Could be a survey on how is food distributions today. So really being able to add that voice. So not only do we give them the voice of accessing the internet and being part of the global communication, you know, uh, world that we all are part of today, but we also give them access to knowledge about their current situation and where they are and a voice on explaining what needs they might have or what needs we might not have noticed that, that they want addressed. So what do you find missing or what's preventing more participation from some of these um, big players, top tier tech companies like Google, Apple or Amazon, for example? Well, firstly, it's because they don't understand the market. So when you don't understand a market, it's going to be really difficult for you to go enter into it. You'd much rather go into markets where you've got a quick win and you can, you know, because it is around you know, 5x, 10x growth, you know, these types of things, these levels that we put on things. So I think that the reality is, is again, people like Humanity Link being able to come in and explain to them the situation, explain to them what the market looks like and how does the market react to even lower tech uh, assistance and lower tech work and then help them to understand how you have to grow that and how it has to push. It can't be a one-year project. You've got to have a three-year, you know, put your boots on the ground, get the people in there, iterate and understand that it's not a one-size-fits-all 
And that unfortunately, what you're going to find is that your product might work in these 10 countries, but there's no way it's going to work in these 10. And you've got to change your product for those 10 countries to make sure that it works for those people. It's a lot harder. Let me be frank. This is not an easy sell. It, it's not a, it's not a, a typical uh, demographic that you're going to engage in with the product or with the technology, et cetera. And so you've got to be able to understand that demographic and work through that demographic. And even the demographic in that country is also disparages because the capital city where people have got smartphones and they use apps and they drive Mercedes is a lot different from the people in the north of that country that still, you know, are pastoralists and walk their cows 300 miles every month. So, you know, you've even even within your population, the, the disparity amongst the demographics is really big versus in the U.S. where you've got kind of 99% of the meat is there and then you've got kind of 1% on both ends, which is different. And here we are talking about AI applications. And so what's your take on humanitarian applications of artificial intelligence across all these different fields and geographies? Where do you see the domain in three or five years and what's needed in your opinion to get there? Yeah, for sure. Look, AI is super important and we know that and we know that it can take us where we need to go for decision making. And I think that's one of the main areas, the main focuses that a lot of organizations are thinking about AI, you know, utilizing data lakes, starting to throw in all the data that they're receiving and that they're getting and letting the computers kind of disaggregate it and pull it apart and put it together and see what it actually means in a different way and hope to open our minds. I think that's one very important thing. You know, because we're not a manufacturing industry, you know, there's a lot of other different things that, that AI can provide. But for us, for example, predictions, getting to these predictive opportunities, predictive financing, predictive insurance, predictive analytics around emergencies, you know, can we potentially see a conflict coming up on the horizon in six months because all of these indicators have been, been pinging inside that data lake and we didn't see it, you know, and, it, and, and you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot there that can happen that can help us. It's not the end-all solution for us by any stretch of the imagination because we have to be on the ground. We have to be with people. I think one of the biggest gaps that's coming in right now is the data collection and the understanding across agencies of the importance of the data collection and the consistency of that data collection, the taxonomies, all those things. There are organizations out there looking at these types of things. The UNOCHA has hum data and, you know, and all this stuff that they're doing. But it's a long way to go. And if you ask those folks over there, they'll tell you how much of a, a slog this has been to get people to collect the right data, have the taxonomies be the same, and then still be throwing it into one space. There's a lot of proprietariness to it and all this other stuff because it's a competitive environment too. So, you know, you can't get 50 agencies all sharing their data in one place because the whole, you know, the EU, for example, tells you that you need to conduct an assessment first before you get their money. Well, you're not going to share that assessment data with anybody else because that's going to then preclude you from getting the money. So, so you know, there's all these little parts around the donor community and everything else that's also inhibiting um, this moving forward. The, the last piece I would say is also around open source. You know, there's, there are two main tracks, as there are in most industries, right? You've got the, the IP folks and you've got the open source folks. And they don't even understand the idea that open source can't have IP and, you know, and I, all these intricacies uh, around this. And I think that what's going to be really important as we move forward is the opportunity to utilize open source, but at the same time, a really strong governance structure. And unfortunately, the humanitarian system is so disjointed because of where the agencies are and what the agencies do. And, and so there's not an overarching governance model for the humanitarian system. So imagine 
if we can't govern ourselves, how are we going to govern our data? And so that's going to be a big hurdle that we need to look at for the future. Well, that's that's lovely to get your advice there, Christopher. We also like to ask our guests to share something that they'd love to see a futuristic AI application do. What would you like to see? I would really like to see models around movements. I think for me that that's really, that's really important, being able to see where we think people are going when crisis strikes, because then that helps us to understand where we need to provide assistance. So we can actually pre-position ourselves or our thoughts or bespoke our tools to address those needs in those areas where people are going to go. So being able to really predict the movement of people, I think, is really important. And that can come from a micro level, but also a macro level. And so micro level being, you know, in a refugee camp, being able to create mathematical models on COVID spread based on food distributions, right? And, and how does that look? And what can we do with that? And how can we build around that? Uh, I think the, the, another one, and I've already mentioned it, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive it home as hard as I can, is this idea about predictive analytics, right? How can we look at crisis? Um, and be able to get get a pretty good forecast on what we can see potentially happening in the space of crisis, whether that is drought, uh, you know, and weather related, and also being under, able to understand how many people that's going to affect. You know, it's around flooding. Just this week, it was released that they're doing the world's largest assessment of flood prone areas, and then they're going to track the populations and see, put up models around that. But for us, it's it's the modeling. I mean, a lot of other work I do is around digital twins. I look at a lot of digital twin twin work in a number of different spaces, both industrial urban symbiosis and all these things. But when we're talking about the humanitarian sector in and of itself, I see that that's AI's future. Any takeaways, Christopher, before we wrap this up that you'd like to share? I just think that the importance of the private sector, especially the tech side of the private sector, getting involved in helping us to understand what is available as humanitarians in technology, in the technology space, is super important because none of us, to be frank, maybe 0.001% of us have that tech background. And so we are grasping for straws and grasping for knowledge and grasping for input from the tech sector to help to influence our decision-making and our opportunities. And so we really want to hear their voice and not that voice from a marketing standpoint, which tends to be the typical engagement is marketing from a, a corporate into the humanitarian sector. Let's stop that for now. Put it on pause. You know what? If people like your product, they're going to buy it, right? The important part is here is what added value can you bring to us from a knowledge standpoint to add to our body of knowledge, to add to our toolbox so that we can actually get out there and help people more efficiently, more effectively and safely because safety is a huge issue both for us and for the people that that we're trying to serve. That's very practical and very important. We're very lucky talking to Christopher today. I know our audio engineer is working on some audio for us and it's impossible not to see your drum set at the back, Christopher. I know you're in the Netherlands and would you like to give us a nice drum roll finale? Of course, I'll play you out. Thank you so much for joining us. This brings today's edition of Humanitarian AI to a close.